0: This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media. Thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation to Visionathon today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word.
1: Just about the time you get to the door, and if you think it's gonna open and you're gonna have that thing with a wall and will be satisfied, guess what God does? Slams it shut.
0: Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill. Thanks so much for joining me on today with Jeff Vines. And in his message. Pastor Jeff speaks about how God wants to be in a long-term relationship with us, a relationship that strengthens and deepens over time, a relationship that we put first above everything else we love in our lives so we can be truly satisfied. The passage we're starting in for this message is Philippians chapter 3. If you can, turn there while we get started with Pastor Jeff's message. On today with Jeff Vines.
1: Turn first of all, if you would, over to Philippians chapter 3, as we begin this new series called Pump, there are some passages of scripture that just pump me up. That is, when I read them and I start to really consider what they're saying, I realize that they can, they, they're life defining moments. They, they're life changing. They have the potential to change everything about us. And when I get to do a series like this, where I talk about four passages that pump me up, I, I get even more motivated, and the blood goes through my veins a little bit faster, my heart beats a little bit faster. And I want to share with you the first passage. And here's what it is. It's written by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Hold on tight. Here we go. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Let me read it again. Here's what Paul says. And this is near the end of his life. He says, I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, to understand what's happening here, I need to take you on a little bit of a journey. Let's talk about the three stages of marriage, okay? First stage is the courtship phase, right? And in the courtship phase, this is when the man is at his deceitful best, right? (laughs) He is trying to convince you that he is something that he's never going to be again after the marriage ceremony takes place. So he's on his best behavior. We call this, the operative words of the courtship phase are wooing and drawing. He's trying to woo you by flowers and romance and long walks and conversations that he'll never have with you again. And in that courtship phase, he will give up things that matter uh, for something that matters most, which during the courtship phase is you. So as the wife or the girlfriend, you get placed on the front burner. You're a front burner item during this phase. So he'll give up Sunday football with his friends because he, he actually wants to, he would actually rather spend time with you. Uh, he'll give up playing basketball with his buddies because he wants to be with you. He'll give up money to, to have more money to spend on you to buy flowers and gifts and things that will woo you, things that will compel you. Again, the operative word is wooing or drawing. As a matter of fact, I often tell the story that when Robin and I were dating, I was like Superman. I could, I could go to the airport. <laughs> And I could carry her luggage, my luggage, her carry-ons, and my passports and hers. I could carry it all. I was like the strongest man on planet Earth. And then about three years after the marriage, we're traveling together, and uh, she's got my luggage and her luggage and the passports and three kids. And I'm turning around, looking at her, and saying, "Are you coming or not?" I mean, it's amazing. It's it's a whole different thing. So the courtship phase is wooing. It's drawing. Some of you young girls are not married. Be aware. That's what it's like. Now, if If the courtship phase goes well, then you move into the second phase, which is the marriage phase. And in the marriage phase, you make a covenant. And suddenly, you're entering into this agreement, for better or for worse. There's a priority shift. You're responsible now in the marriage setting. There's a singularity of vision, a commitment to her. Your focus is on her, and she really is a front burner item. And you move from phileo, friendship-type love, into eros, an erotic-type love. The covenant that you make brings privileges. And so there's intimacy, there's closeness, there's relationship. You move from self-serving to self-sacrifice. You actually, in the marriage, agree to put somebody else's needs before your own. Now, courtship, the operative words, wooing, compelling, marriage, covenant, and commitment. And then there's the third phase of the marriage that very few marriages move into, ever. And that's why we still have 50, 60% divorce rate, even in the church, And that third phase is called the love and enjoyment phase. This phase is where you actually are most satisfied when you're spending time with your spouse. What used to be a duty oh man, I need to go home. I want to go out with my buddies, but I need to go home because I'm married. Okay? I want to go golfing this weekend, but man, it's my wife's birthday. You know, that's (laughs) duty. You know, I want to go on this trip, but it's our anniversary, you know. so the point is, where you do those things for out of the sake of duty, somewhere along the line, for those who invest in a, in a marriage and want it to become a good marriage, it just happens. Because you're in proximity to your wife and your husband, and you get to know each other in a way that you've not known anybody before, the third stage of the marriage, when it gets really, really good, is when you would actually be with each other than anything else you are most satisfied in the company of your husband or wife That marriage is one that lasts now don't act like or I don't want to act like that I've done this all of my life with my wife Robin because I got to tell you It's only been in the last four or five years that I've gone to the third stage Think about that married 20 plus years as a pastor and never moved into that stage. I'm just like the rest of you guys, man uh, I'm gonna be late from work <sighs> on my way to the golf course <laughs> You got it but then something happened just recently Where I my favorite thing, I am most satisfied in actually being on the couch with my wife, drinking a cup of tea, watching television together, talking, having conversation, taking walks, going up to Mount Baldy and just walking to the falls. That's the third stage where duty becomes desire. It's actually what you want to do. Now, the reason I start like that is because your relationship with God is identical to those three stages. The first stage is the courtship phase. God has been wooing you all of your life. Did you know that? Through good and bad circumstances, he has been courting you. It's the divine romance, the sense of wonder, the sense of beyond. He's been compelling you to draw near, to acknowledge God is real, God exists. As a matter of fact, every person on planet earth comes into this world with an acknowledgement that God is real. It takes an entire culture to debunk God if God is to be debunked. You have a sense of wonder, a sense of awe. I remember when Delaney was a little boy, two, two and a half years old, every afternoon when I got home from seminary, uh, he was waiting by the front door. My wife said, it's it's uncanny. He doesn't have a watch and he's too young to tell time, but it's like he knows about the time in the afternoon that you're going to come home. And I would open the door and he'd have the same look on his face. It was like, dad, you got to get me out (laughs) of here. There's got to be more to life than Gerber peas and Gerber green beans, please, dad. There's something in us. We know that. And it's why I like the G.K. Chesterton quote where he says, if my children have Santa to thank for putting candy into their stockings, who do I have to thank for putting two feet into mine? And then my friend Ravi, again, the first time he saw Cape Point, those two oceans that meet at the southern tip of South Africa, you're so overwhelmed with the beauty and the design. There's this overwhelming desire in you to thank somebody. The point is, from the time you were born to the things that you've seen, from the wondrous and beauty of the world, there's supposed to be something in you that God is courting you, he's compelling you, he's wooing you. Now somewhere along the line, he wants to move you into the second part of that relationship, and that's the marriage covenant. The marriage covenant is where you realize God exists, but you realize there's an estrangement between you and God. There's been a fracture, and the fracture is your sin. God is a perfect, holy, and complete, and pure God. You're not. And somewhere along life's road, you're supposed to acknowledge, man, God is holy, he is pure, and I am not, I got issues. Now, at CCV, we talk about this little graph right here. We say that this is us, and that this is God, and there's a gap because of our sin between us, and through the cross of Jesus Christ, this is the way that the gap is bridged. It's God's entire plan from the very foundations of the world, it's what he planned Uh, For you and me, there's no way he was gonna allow us to be estranged from him, so he provided a way by sending his son. He bridged the gap that exists between us and him so that we might move out of courtship into the marriage, into covenant. The covenant God made with us, as demonstrated through Abraham, is that God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He paid the penalty for our sin, and now we come into community. Now, here's what we've never talked about, ever. (laughs) New material. Even though we all know how God bridged the first gap, There's a second gap that we've never discussed. Once you get over on the side of God, just because you're in proximity to God doesn't mean that you have intimacy and community with God. It means that the potential for intimacy and community exists, but there's still a gap. He solves the first gap by the cross, but there's a second gap. Here's what God wants from you. Not only that you be saved, that is not the end goal for your life, saving you Makes it possible to achieve the ultimate goal of your life. The ultimate goal of your life is this that God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in Him. He wants to move you to the third phase of the relationship. He wants to get you to the point where the things you do are out of desire, not duty, that you actually want to be in His presence. That you don't say, oh man, I'm not done my devotion, then the guilt comes. He actually wants to get you to the point where you are most satisfied when you are worshiping, when you are with the people of God, when you are with him in community. Now the question is, how does he get you to that point? Because that's going to be a hard gap to close. Because there are competing issues and competing lesser loves. How does God then bridge that second gap? To move us into the third stage, where we are most satisfied in him. Here's the clue in Revelation 3. The Bible says in verse 7, there are words, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now stay with me. Here's what God does to close that gap. Your entire life, after you give your life to Jesus, is about opening closed doors. God is going to close some doors and not allow you to go through. Other doors he's going to open and he's going to allow you to walk through and some doors he's going to open and shove you through Because he knows there's no way you're going to go in and of yourself But all of these things metaphorically speaking are related to god closing the gap between you and him So that you will be most satisfied More satisfied in him than any other lesser love of your life Now here's how he does that metaphorically. It's an open and closed door pragmatically he does that two ways. Number one, he starts to frustrate your lesser loves. He closes the door on competing lesser loves in your life. Think about it. If I asked you to finish this sentence, how would you do it? Pastor Jeff, I would be happy and complete if I would just get that promotion, could buy that house, have this number in my bank account, have a minister who preached 15 minute sermons. <laughs> Keep dreaming. Keep, get that car. But but some of our desires are more serious. I would be happy and complete and satisfied. Ultimately, I I could survive if my husband would become a believer, if I could have a happy marriage, if I could control my children, if my mother or my father or my child who's ill would become made well, if I could have a child of my own, if God could open this wound of mine and I could have a child of my own, if I could reach the top of my profession. Now, all of these are not sinful things. These are good things in and of themselves. They're not morally wrong food, chocolate, it's okay to love other things. Guys, got to tell you, I had the best coffee of my life in Thailand. I spent most of my time, again, finishing a book that I've been working on and I went to this cafe called Dopio. I don't know if that means they put dope in the coffee, but they put something in there that was addictive because every morning, as soon as I woke up, I got to have that coffee. And I would go and I would sit for about four or five hours and finish this book I've been working on, drinking like two or three coffee. I usually just have one coffee. But this was like liquid candy. It was beautiful. It's okay to love coffee. It's okay to love golf, to love chocolate, to love food, to love recreation or occupation or homes and castles and money and positions and children and spouse. There's nothing wrong until those things begin to receive our ultimate allegiance. Until we begin pursuing those things ultimately because they... They, or we believe that those are the things that will give us ultimate satisfaction until we begin to trust in the lesser loves to the point that we think we can't live without them, until we place our hope for ultimate satisfaction in them, and then we start to see God as a means to our end. This is what we really think will satisfy. So we're going to pray real hard that God open the door so that we may obtain them. And I've said it before. Do you realize what you're praying? You're asking God to help you get your idol. Now, all of us do this. No one's immune. I do it. You do it. And when you get rid of one, something else rears its ugly head. It's the competing co- competition loves of your life. The problem is, in a book called Happiness is a Choice by Minerth and Meyer, one of the most famous counseling or psychological clinics... Dr. Minerth says that we are convinced that many people choose happiness but never find it. And the reason they never find it is because they look for it in all the wrong places. They seek for happiness and satisfaction and materialism and don't find it. They seek for joy and sexual prowess but end up with fleeting pleasures and long-term disappointments. They seek inner fulfillment by obtaining positions of power in corporations or government in their own families by exercising control. And then they come to my office, and here's how he finishes it. He says, I've had millionaire businessmen come to my office and tell me that they have big houses, yachts, condominiums in Colorado, nice children, a beautiful mistress, an unsuspecting wife, secure corporate positions, and suicidal tendencies. They have everything the world has to offer except the one thing they want the most, inner peace and joy. They come to my office as a last resort begging me to help them conquer the urge to kill themselves. You know what this is? Here's the uncanny thing about God. In order that you might be most satisfied in him, that your duty might be transformed from duty to desire, and the gap would be closed between you and God, and you would know him as he seeks to be known. Yes, he frustrates your lesser loves. That is just about the time you get to the door, and if you think it's going to open and you're going to have that thing with a wolf, and when he's satisfied, guess what God does? Slams it shut. He says, no, I don't think so. Because God is not in the habit of giving you or granting you something that's going to be an ultimate distraction from him. And that's why Jesus said in Mark 8, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? But folks, I'm convinced the longer I live, it's demonstrated by the quote from Minerth and Meyer, that the other thing God does is he goes ahead and sometimes and he just opens the door for you. Okay, that's what you want? Go ahead. Go ahead. That's what you think is going to ultimately satisfy. Go ahead. Walk on through because you're not listening. Now, you think about it. Sometimes in our lives, God's over here doing this. Don't go through the door. It's going to destroy you, man. And of course, you know that God's closed the door, but you just don't give up and you think it's intestinal fortitude. So you just keep trying to crash down a door that you know down to even side God doesn't want you to go through. But sooner or later, God says, all right, fine, go ahead. And guess what happens? He allows you to experience that thing you thought was going to give you ultimate satisfaction only to frustrate you even more because it never delivers what it promises. And he does that because he hopes that by living in the distant land, you'll see how futile it is and you'll run home to the father. He frustrates your lesser loves. And if that doesn't work, he moves into the second phase. He takes a little bit more aggressive tone with you. He strips the lesser love away completely. This is painful. We, we just don't understand why God did what he did with Abraham and Isaac. And part of it is, when God asked Abraham to take his son up to the top of the mountain and sacrifice him, the first thing is that Abraham knew that God would never go through with it. Because if you read the text, he says to his servant, wait here, both my son and I will return. But the second thing is, we're talking about an age of primogeniture. If you had a son, you had everything. For Abraham to have a son meant that Abraham's name would go on that his people would multiply. And that's what Abraham wanted in his day and time. That's what all men wanted more than anything else. Somewhere along the line, Isaac became a greater love than God and God put Abraham to the test. Isn't it interesting that sometimes the very things we pray for and the gifts God gives us take his place. And so God, not that he wanted to know, but he wanted to remind Abraham that as good as Isaac is, and a greater gift as a son is, it's still a lesser love. And he sends Abraham up to the mountain to remind him. And when Abraham started to bring the knife down, even though the angel prevented, more than informing God, Abraham informed himself yes, truly, God is my greatest love. Do you know what this means, folks? It means that there have been moments in your life in the past that you've misinterpreted. You thought God was abandoning you just because he closed the door that you begged him to open. You thought he didn't love you when in reality, he kept it closed because he was trying to bridge the gap between you and him. Folks, to me, this isn't just theory. This is my life. When my mom died and my father was sitting in the waiting room, he was praying. My dad hardly ever prayed out loud. He was praying the most intense prayer I ever heard my father pray. And it was for God to open a door that would save the life of my mom. <laughs> now you realize if God opened the door to save mom's life, he would be closing the door on my mom being in his presence. We, all, we we often forget that dad prayed and prayed and my mom died. Three days later, we were on the front porch of the front porch swing in a home in Tennessee. And my dad said to me, son, why did God take your mother from me? I went back to New Zealand. Three years later, I came home for the next furlough. I hadn't seen my dad for three years. We went to that same front porch. My dad said, hey, come back to the back bedroom. I got something I want you to see. So I followed him back and he opened up this big chest and then it was a big, thick Bible, worn and tattered. And he said, I've been wanting to give you this, but I kept forgetting this is your mother's Bible. And I took my mom's Bible and I started going through the pages. There were flowers in it. Remember, I used to put roses and flowers in your Bible. And all kinds of markings in the margin. But there was a prayer list that she had been praying for, evidently, for years and years of her life. One of the prayers, I think it was the first one on the list, was for my father to experience the unconditional love of God. The reason is because my dad had a horrible dad. His dad beat him. I mean, just physical and mental cruelty and abuse. My dad had a stammer, a stutter, and every time he stammered or stuttered, my father's father would beat him and he would beat him with a shovel so that I can never remember a time when my dad could stand up straight. I always remember my dad walking over. Irreparable damage. But when my father met my mom, he fell so deeply in love that he figured finally, I have found the love that fulfills everything. My mother, because she was a lot more mature in her faith than my father, knew that was a dangerous game to play because she may not always be there. So she prayed regularly for my dad, although to receive her love, to learn what it is to be loved ultimately by a father, the heavenly father, who would never leave you or forsake you and who would love you unconditionally. Dad gave me that Bible. I went back to New Zealand. Now it's three years again later, and I come back. It's been six years since my mom died. My dad took me to the back porch, a porch he had built, to just sit out and ponder. He said, son, I have something I want to tell you. I said, what is it, dad? I know God in a way I never have before. And I don't think it would have happened without your mom's passing. What do you mean, dad? He I said, I, I can't believe I missed this for most of my life. The way he has ministered to me, the way... He has revealed himself to me. There are things about God I never knew and probably would have never known without your mom's passing. My dad lived the rest of his life very courageously and he learned to do things he had never learned to do. Because he had a father that did not know how to express love to his children, he had a hard time expressing it to us. But for the last, I don't know, five, 10 years of his life, I bet you my dad said, I love you, son, more times in those years than all the other years put together. Because when you go to close proximity to God, when you start to get close to God, you start to become like Him.
0: That's a good place to pause today's message. As usual, we'll come back to hear the rest of Pastor Jeff's message next time. Here's a little tease of what's still to come.
1: God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. But you're not going to know that you're most satisfied in Him until He removes all the other things you're trying to satisfy yourself with. And God is committed to closing the gap.
0: Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines.